0: section 47 of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume 1 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume 1 by george lilly craik chapter 4 part twenty three daniel the great work of samuel daniel who was born at taunton in somersetshire in fifteen sixty two and died in sixteen nineteen is his civil wars between the two houses of lancaster and york in eight books the first four published in fifteen ninety five the fifth in fifteen ninety nine the sixth in sixteen o two the two last in sixteen o nine the preceding books being always, we believe, republished along with the new edition. He is also the author of various minor poetical productions, of which the principal are a collection of 57 sonnets entitled Delia, his Musophilus, containing a general defense of learning, some short epistles, and several tragedies and court masques and he wrote besides in prose a history of england from the conquest of the end of the uh, reign of edward the third as well as the defence of rhyme in answer to campion which has been already mentioned very opposite judgments have been passed upon daniel then johnson in his conversations with drummond declared him to be no poet drummond on the contrary pronounces him for sweetness of rhyming second to none his style both in prose and verse has a remarkably modern air if it were weeded of a few obsolete expressions it would scarcely seem more antique than that of waller which is the most modern of the seventeenth century bishop kennett who has republished daniel's history after telling us that the author had a place at court in the reign of king james I, being groom of the privy chambers to the queen observes that he seems to have taken all the refinement a court could give him and probably the absence of pedantry in his style and its easy and natural flow are to be traced in great part to the circumstance of his having been a man of the world his verse too always careful and exact is in many passages more than smooth even in his dramatic writings which having nothing dramatic about them except the form have been held in very small estimation it is frequently musical and sweet though always artificial the highest quality of his poetry is a tone of quiet pensive reflection in which he is fond of indulging and which often rises to dignity and eloquence and has at times even something of depth and originality daniels was the not uncommon fate of an attendant upon courts and the great he is believed to have experienced some neglect from his royal patrons in his latter days or at least to have been made jealous by ben jonson being employed to furnish part of the poetry for the court entertainments the supply of which he used to have all to himself upon which he retired to a life of quiet and contemplation in the country it sounds strange in the present day to be told that his favourite retreat from the gaiety and bustle of london was a house which he rented in old street st luke's in his gardens here we are informed by the writer of the life prefixed to his collected poems he would often indulge in entire solitude for many months or at most receive the visits of only a few select friends it is said to have been here that he composed most of his dramatic pieces towards the end of his life he retired to a farm which he had at beckington near phillips norton in Somersetshire, and his death took place there he was married says the editor of his works but whether to the person he so often celebrates under the name of delia is uncertain fuller in his worthies tells us that his wife's name was justina they had no children. Daniel is said to have been appointed to the honorary post of poet laureate after the death of Spenser. In his narrative poetry, Daniel is, in general, wire-drawn, flat, and feeble. He has no passion and very little descriptive power. His civil wars has certainly as little of martial animation in it as any poem in the language. There is abundance, indeed, of the tranquil mind, but of the plumed troops and the rest of the pride, pomp, and circumstance of glorious war, Daniel seems, in composing this work, we have nearly written in this composing work to have taken as complete a farewell as othello himself it is mostly a tissue of long-winded disquisition and cold and languid declamation and has altogether more of the qualities of a good opiate than of a good poem we will therefore take the few extracts for which we can make room from some of his other productions where his vein of reflection is more in place and also better in itself His Musophilus is perhaps upon the whole his finest piece. The poem which is in the form of a dialogue between Philokosmus, a lover of the world, and Musophilus, a lover of the muse, commences thus. Philokosmus, fond man, Musophilus, that thus dost spend in an ungainful art thy dearest days, tiring thy wits and toiling to no end but to attain that idle smoke of praise now when this busy world cannot attend the untimely music of neglected lays other delights than these other desires this wiser profit-seeking age requires musophilus friend philocosmus i confess indeed i love this sacred art thou set'st so light and though it never stand my life instead it is enough it gives myself delight the whilst my unafflicted mind doth feed on no unholy thoughts for benefit be it that my unseasonable song come out of time that fault is in the time and i must not do virtue so much wrong as love her aught the worse for others crime and yet i find some blessed spirits among that cherish me and like in grace my rhyme again that i do more in soul esteem than all the gain of dust the world doth crave and if i may attain but to redeem my name from dissolution and the grave i shall have done enough and better deem to have lived to be than to have died to have short breathed mortality would yet extend that span of life so far forth as it may and rob her fate seek to beguile her end of some few lingering days of after-stay that all this little all might not descend into the dark and universal prey and give our labours yet this poor delight that when our days do end they are not done and though we die we shall not perish quite but live two lives where others have but one further on in the dialogue musophilus exclaims so fares this humorous world that evermore wrapped with the current of a present course runs into that which lay contemned before then glutted leaves the same and falls to a worse now zeal holds all no life but to adore then cold in spirit and life is of no force straight all that holy was unhallowed lies the scattered carcasses of ruined vows then truth is false and now hath blindness eyes then zeal trusts all now scarcely what it knows that evermore too foolish or too wise it fatal is to be seduced with shows sacred religion mother of form and fear how gorgeously sometimes dost thou sit decked what pompous vestures do we make thee wear what stately piles we prodigal erect how sweet perfumed thou art how shining clear how solemnly observed with what respect another time all plain all quite threadbare thou must have all within and naught without sit poorly without light disrobed no care of outward grace to amuse the poor devout powerless unfollowed scarcely men can spare the necessary rights to set thee out, either truth, goodness, virtue are not still the self same which they are and always one, but alter to the project of our will, or we our actions make them wait upon, putting them in the livery of our skill and cast them off again when we have done. Afterwards, he replies very finely to an objection of Philocosmus to the cultivation of poultry from the small number of those who really cared for it and for the few that only lend their ear that few is all the world which with a few do ever live and move and work and stir this is the heart doth feel and only know the rest of all that only bodies bear roll up and down and fill up but the row and serve as others members not their own the instruments of those that do direct then what disgrace is this not to be known to those know not to give themselves respect and though they swell with pomp of folly blown they live ungraced and die but in neglect and for my part if only one allow the care my labouring spirits taken this he is to me a theatre large enow and his applause only sufficient is all my respect is bent but to his brow that is my all and all i am is his and if some worthy spirits be pleased to it shall more comfort breed but not more will but what if none it cannot yet undo the love i bear unto this holy skill this is the thing that i was born to do this is my scene this part must i fulfil our last extract shall be from his epistle to the lady margaret countess of cumberland the mother of lady anne clifford afterwards countess of pembroke dorset and montgomery to whom daniel had been tutor he that of such a height hath set his mind and reared the dwelling of the thought so strong as neither fear nor hope can shake the frame of his resolved powers nor all the wind of vanity or malice pierce to wrong his settled peace or to disturb the same what a fair seat hath he from whence he may the boundless wastes and wheels of man survey and with how free an eye doth he look down upon these lower regions of turmoil where all the storms of passions mainly beat on flesh and blood where honour power renown are only gay affections golden toil where greatness stands upon as feeble feet as frailty doth and only great doth seem to little minds who do it so esteem thus madam fares that man that hath prepared a rest for his desires and sees all things beneath him and hath learned this book of man full of the notes of frailty and compared the best of glory with her sufferings by whom i see you labour all you can to plant your heart and set your thoughts as near his glorious mansion as your powers can bear which madam are so soundly fashioned by that clear judgment that hath carried you beyond the feeble limits of your kind as they can stand against the strongest head passion can make inure to in any hue the world can cast they cannot cast that mind out of the form of goodness that doth see both what the best and worst of earth can be which makes that whatsoever here befalls you in the region of yourself remain where no vain breath of the impudent molests that lieth secured within the brazen walls of a clear conscience that without all stain rises in peace in innocency rests whilst all what malice from without procures shows her own ugly heart but hurts not yours and whereas none rejoice more in revenge than women used to do yet you well know that wrong is better checked by being contemned than being pursued leaving to him to avenge to whom it appertains wherein you show how worthily your clearness hath condemned base malediction living in the dark that at the rays of goodness still doth bark knowing the heart of man is set to be the centre of this world about the which these revolutions of disturbances still roll where all the aspects of misery predominate whose strong effects are such as he must bear being powerless to redress and that unless above himself he can erect himself how poor a thing is man and this note madame of your worthiness remains recorded in so many hearts as time nor malice cannot wrong your right in the inheritance of fame you must possess you have built you by your great deserts out of small means a far more exquisite and glorious dwelling for your honoured name than all the gold of leaden mines can frame drayton michael drayton who is computed to have been born in 1563 and who died in 1631 is one of the most voluminous of our old poets being the author besides many minor compositions of three works of great length his baron's wars on the subject of the civil wars of the reign of edward the second originally entitled morta under which name it was published in 1596 his england's heroical epistles 1598 and his polyolbion the first eighteen books of which appeared in 1612 and the whole consisting of thirty books and extending to as many thousand lines in 1622 this last is the work on which his fame principally rests it is a most elaborate and minute topographical description of england written in an alexandrine rhymes and is a very remarkable work for the varied learning it displays as well as for its poetic merits the genius of drayton is neither very imaginative nor very pathetic but he is an agreeable and weighty writer with an ardent if not a highly creative fancy from the height to which he occasionally ascends as well as from his power of keeping longer on the wing. He must be ranked as he always has been much before both Warner and Daniel. He has greatly more elevation than the former, and more true poetic life than the latter. His most graceful poetry, however, is perhaps to be found in some of his shorter pieces, in his pastorals, his very elegant and little lively poem entitled Nymphidia or The Court of Fairy, and his verses on poets and poesy in which occur the lines on Marlowe that have been quoted in the preceding page from a mass of verse extending in all to not far from a t- hundred thousand lines the few extracts that we can give must be far from affording a complete illustration of the author's genius the following is from the commencement of the thirteenth book or song of the polyalbion the subject of which is the county of warwick of which drayton as he here tells us was a native upon the midlands now the industrious muse doth fall that shire which we the heart of england well may call as she herself extends the midst which is decreed betwixt st michael's mount and Berwick bordering tweed brave warwick that abroad so long advanced her bare by her illustrious earls renowned everywhere above her neighbouring showers which always bore her head my native country then which so brave spirits has bred if there be virtues yet remaining in thy earth Or any good of thine thou bredst into my birth except it is thine own whilst now i sing of thee of all thy later brood, the unworthiest though i be when phoebus lifts his head out of the water's wave no sooner doth the earth her flowery bosom brave at such time as the year brings on the pleasant spring but hunts up to the morn the feathered sylvans sing and in the lower grove as on the rising knoll upon the highest spray of every mounting pole these Quiristers are perched with many a speckled breast then from her burnished gate the goodly glittering east gilds every mountain-top which late the humorous night bespangled had with pearl to please the morning sight on which the mirthful choirs with their clear open throats to the joyful morn so strain their warbling notes that hills and valleys ring and even the echoing air seems all composed of sounds about them everywhere the thrush with shrill sharps as purposely he song to awake the lustless sung or chiding that so long he was in coming forth that should the thickets thrill the woosel near at hand that hath a golden bill as nature him had marked of purpose to let us see that from all other birds his tunes should different be for with their vocal sounds they sing to pleasant may upon his dulcet pipe the merle doth only play when in the lower brake the nightingale hard by in such lamenting strains the joyful hours doth ply as though the other birds she to her tunes would draw and but that nature by her all constraining law each bird to her own kind this season doth invite they else alone to hear that charmer of the night the more to use their ears, their voices sure would spare that moduleth her notes so admirably rare as man to set in parts at first had learned of her to Philomel the next, the linnet we prefer, and by that warbling bird, the woodlark place we then the red sparrow, the nope, the red breast, and the wren. The yellow pate which though she hurt the blooming tree yet scarce hath any bird of finer pipe than she and of these chanting fowls the goldfinch not behind that hath so many sorts descending from her kind the tidy for her notes as delicate as they the laughing hecho then the counterfeiting jay the softer with the shrill some hid among the leaves some in the taller trees some in the lower greaves thus sing away the morn until the mounting sun through thick exhaled fogs his golden head hath run and through the twisted tops of our close covert creeps to kiss the gentle shade this while that sweetly sleeps and near to these our thicks the wild and frightful herds not hearing other noise but this of chattering birds feed fairly on the lawns both sorts of seasoned deer here walk the stately red the freckled fallow there the bucks and lusty stags amongst the rascals strewed as sometime gallant spirits amongst the multitude of all the beasts which we for our venereal name the heart among the rest the hunter's noblest game of which most princely chase, sith none did e'er report, or by description touch to express that wondrous sport, yet might have well beseemed the ancients' noble songs to our old Arden here most fitly it belongs. Yet shall she not invoke the muses to her aid, but thee, Diana Bright, a goddess and a maid, in many a huge-grown wood and many a shady grove, which oft hast borne thy bow great huntress used to rove at many a cruel beast and with thy darts to pierce the lion panther ounce the bear and tiger fierce and following thy fleet game chased mighty forest queen with thy dishevelled nymphs attired in youthful green about the lawns hast scoured and wastes both far and near brave huntress but no beast shall prove thy quarries here save those the best of chase the tall and lusty red the stag for goodly shape and stateliness of head is fittest to hunt it forth. for whom when with his hounds the laboring hunter tufts the thick unbarbed grounds where harbored is the heart there often from his feed the dogs of him do find or thorough skilful heed the huntsman by his shot or breaking earth Perceives or entering of the thick by pressing of the greaves where he had gone to lodge now, when the heart doth hear the often bellowing hounds to vent his secret lair he rousing rusheth out and through the brakes doth drive as though up by the roots the bushes he would rive, and through the cumbrous thicks as filfully he makes he with his branched head the tender saplings shakes that sprinkling their moist pearls do seem for him to weep when after goes the cry with yellings loud and deep that all the forest rings and every neighbouring place and there is not a hound but falleth to the chase re with his horn which then the hunter cheers while still the lusty stag his high-palmed head uprears his body showing state with unbent knees upright expressing from all beasts his courage in his flight but when the approaching foe still following he perceives that he his speed must trust his usual walk he leaves and o'er the champagne flies which when the assembly find each follows as his horse were footed with the wind but being then embossed the noble stately deer when he hath gotten ground the kennel cast arrear doth beat the brooks and ponds for sweet refreshing soil that serving not then proves if he his scent can foil and makes amongst the herds and flocks of shag wooled sheep them frighting from the guard of those who had their keep but whenas all his shifts his safety still denies put quite out of his walk the ways and fallows tries whom when the ploughman meets his team he letteth stand to assail him with his goad so with his hook in hand the shepherd him pursues and to his dog doth hallo when with temptuous speed the hounds and huntsmen follow until the noble deer through toil bereaved of strength his long and sinewy legs then failing him at length the village's attempts enraged not giving way to anything he meets now at his sad decay the cruel ravenous hounds and bloody hunters near this noblest beast of chase that vainly doth not fear some bank or quickset finds to which his haunch opposed he turns upon his foes that soon have him enclosed the churlish throated hounds then holding him at bay and as their cruel fangs on his harsh skin they lay with his sharp-pointed head he dealeth deadly wounds the hunter coming in to help his wearied hounds he desperately assails until oppressed by force he who the mourner is to his own dying course upon the ruthless earth his precious tears lets fall this passage though long will scarcely be felt to be tedious it is one of the most animated descriptions in poetry we add a short specimen of drayton's lighter style from his nymphidia the account of the equipage of the queen of the fairies when she set out to visit her lover pig Wigan. the reader may compare it with mercutio's description in romeo and juliet her chariot ready straight is made each thing therein is fitting laid that she by nothing might be stayed for naught must be her letting four nimble guests the horses were their harnesses of gossamer fly cranion her charioteer upon the coach-box getting her chariot of a snail's fine shell which for the colours did excel the fair queen Mab becoming well so lively was the limming. the seat the soft wool of the bee the cover gallantly to see the wing of a pied butterfly i trow twas simple trimming the wheels composed of crickets bones and daintily made for the nonce for fear of rattling on the stones with thistle down they shot it for all her maidens much did fear if oberon had chanced to hear that mad his queen should have been there he would not have abode it she mounts her chariot with a trice nor would she stay for no advice until her maids that were so nice to wait on her were fitted but ran herself away alone, which when they heard there was not one, but hasted after to be gone, as she had been diswitted. Hop and mop and drab so clear, pip and trip and skip that weir to mab their sovereign so dear, her special maids of honour, fib and tib and pink and pin, tick and quick and jill and gin, tit and knit and wap and win the train that wait upon her. Upon a grasshopper they got, and what with amble and with trot for hedge nor ditch they spare it not but after her they hide them a cobweb over them they throw to shield the wind if it should blow themselves they wisely could bestow lest any should espy them joseph hall here should not be omitted a name of great note that of joseph hall who was born in fifteen seventy four and was successively bishop of exeter norwich from the latter of which sees having been expelled by the long parliament he died after protracted sufferings from imprisonment and poverty in sixteen fifty six all began his career of authorship by the publication of three books of satires in fifteen ninety seven while he was a student at cambridge and only in his twenty-third year a continuation followed the next year under the title of Virge de miarum, the three last books and the whole were afterwards republished together as de miarum, six books that is six books of bundles of rods these satires says wharton who has given an elaborate analysis of them are marked with a classical precision to which english poetry had yet hardly attained they are replete with animation of style and sentiment, the characters are delineated in strong and lively colouring, and their discriminations are touched with the masterly traces of genuine humor, the versification is equally energetic and elegant, and the fabric of the couplets approaches to the modern standard. Hall's satires have been repeatedly reprinted in modern times. End of section forty seven